0: So as I understand it, bank tellers are trained to recognize counterfeit notes by repeatedly handling real notes. The way that you get to know whether a Banknote is fake or not, is by repeatedly, repeatedly looking, feeling, touching the real thing. So you might be taught some of the markers that are very specific to a banknote so that you would recognize it, so that when you see, you can see what's wrong with another banknote. You become incredibly used to seeing what a real true banknote looks like. Part of the training, too, is to handle this banknote, to feel it, to feel its weight, to feel how it it, it the fab, the kind of material that it's made of. Um, comparing the look and feel of a a real banknote with a fake one. And the theory goes in training bank tellers that the more you handle real money, the more immediately you'll recognize a counterfeit. And I think that in writing this letter, Peter thinks in exactly the same way as we do in relation to training bank tellers. The whole purpose of his letter he tells us now in chapter three is as a reminder, this is verse one, as a reminder to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Now he feels it's necessary to remind his readers, I mean, they're also his listeners because the letters would have been read aloud in public, but he finds it necessary to remind his readers of the truth because he's already told us in the previous chapter, two, 12 to 14, that he knows his time on earth is limited. This is a man who now wants to be sure that the deposit of truth that he has held has been fully passed on to those whom he has served. He wants them to pay attention, he tells us in chapter 1 of the letter, verses 19 to 21, to the whole truth as it is revealed by Scripture. And he's also told us in chapter 2 that the reason why it's so important not to forget this is that there are going to come into the church fairly soon, probably after his death, there are going to come into the church false teachers. He literally says in chapter 2, false teachers are going to rise up. They are going to secretly introduce untruths. They are even going to deny the Lord Jesus himself. They are going to bring the gospel into disrepute, not only by their teaching, but also by their behavior. And Peter is desperate for the believers that they would be able to recognize when false currency, false truth is introduced into the system. He wants them to be so familiar, like bank tellers, so familiar with the real thing that they know immediately and intuitively when they encounter the stuff that's fake. Now, the particular teaching in this portion of the letter that he's speaking about is teaching around Judgment Day. In verses three to seven, he says, you know, Judgment Day admittedly appears long in coming. And as a result, people are starting to say, look, that whole thing about Judgment Day, that whole thing about Jesus coming back, it's never gonna happen. You know, if he were coming back, he'd be back by now. They, they start to say, you know, the present heavens and earth, are not they're not going to be destroyed. Life is going to continue on for every generation. But in this first section of verses, verses 3 to 7, Peter says, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. Fire is going to come on the earth in the same way that the floodwaters ravished the earth in the time of Noah, destroying almost all life apart from Noah and his family and his wonderful ark full of animals. So, in the same way, fire will come upon the earth and the heavens, and it will purify them and it will rid them of all those who live apart from God. And so, Peter says to his listeners, to his readers, don't forget what you already know. The delay in this day coming is not that God has forgotten. It is not that God is not able to bring it, but it is rather that this day of judgment, this day of terror, is delayed in order that many might come to the Lord Jesus and find life in him. The apparent delay in the coming of the Lord is because of his kindness, Peter tells us. He tells us that in verses 8 to 9. Then finally, in this section of teaching, verses 10 to 13, he says, that day will come. And that day will come, when it comes, it will come without warning, it will come like a thief, the whole of creation will implode in a reality that is going to be simultaneously destructive, but also, we know, will also be recreative. Now, one way to take the teaching today would be to talk about what that will be like. Peter doesn't actually tell us that much. The scriptures tell us in other places. Isaiah 24, Hebrews 12 talks about it, Zephaniah talks about it, the Psalms talk about it, Revelation talks about it. That would be one way we could go today. But I don't actually think that is Peter's main point in this passage. I think when you look at the verbs that are operative in this passage, Peter's point is slightly different. The content is important. But actually, he is concerned about the implications that that reality has for believers in how they think and how they live. And I think it's fair to say that as he speaks to his hearers and listeners in this letter, so the same thing speaks directly to us as well. So I'm inviting you then, if you've got your Bible, to get it open, because I am going to refer to verses as I go along. And in verse 1, he says... I have written both of these letters to you as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. That word, wholesome, is a word in the Greek, ilichronase, that comes from two compound words put together, Hylas is one of those words, and hylas refers to the shining splendor of the sun. And then krino is the basic verb for to judge. So in this word that the NIV has translated wholesome, the sense is actually of holding something up to the sun and letting the light stream through it and finding no contamination in the thing. It's utter purity. The sun passes through this thing without any kind of contamination. This is an utterly pure and transparent reality. And when this word wholesome, which you then think, why did the NIV choose wholesome? That's not necessarily a word I'd associate with what I've just described, but. I suppose the NIV is going for this sense, not just of purity in terms of thinking, uh, but also purity in terms of moral purity, and wholesome probably fits with that. But when this word that's translated wholesome is joined with the word here for uh, thinking, it gives you then the sense that this is about a mindset that is to be completely pure. This is not just about the facts you and I think about, but it is the whole set of our mind, it's the whole way we receive reality, It is about clarity of thinking, clarity of mind, probably also moral purity of mind. And that is what Peter wants his listeners and readers to be stimulated towards. Then throughout the rest of the passage, if you look at the verbs, he tells us how it is that we can be stimulated towards that mindset. He tells us in verse 1 that we are to be reminded We then have verbs such as the idea of recalling in verse 2, understanding in verse 3, verse 8, not forgetting, and then in verses 12, 13, and 14, a kind of mental looking forward to, and then in verse 15, the verb that is translated bearing in mind. All of these words, all of these verbs are about how one sets one's mind. And it strikes me as I look at those different words that some of them are about setting your mind backwards. Be reminded, recall, don't forget. And others are about setting our minds forward, look forward to this day, look forward, bear in mind. And so I'd like to take those two concepts to explore what it might mean for us to set our minds, first of all, to set our minds backwards. Now in the letter, Peter specifically tells believers in verse, I think it's two, He says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. In simple terms, what are the believers to remember? They are to remember the Bible that they had, which was the Jewish Bible, equivalent roughly to our Old Testament. The words of the prophets are found in that text. But prophets is often used as a coverall term to incorporate Torah and the uh, other writings that are found in the Old Testament. And then in addition, they are to set their minds backwards on the truth they've been taught also by the apostles, the Lord and Savior through the apostles. Now, for us, or for them, that was their church leaders, that was those who had established the faith amongst them. For us, of course, that material has been enshrined in the New Testament. So for our purposes, the call is to recall the truth that has been taught In scripture, to recall that truth as you find it in the text and to recall that truth also implicitly for us as our church leaders teach it to us. Um, It's just that for us, it's important that those who teach, someone like me standing at the front, teaches in a way that's in accordance with scripture because that is what is the inspired word of God in our time. And Peter really wants them to know, you know, the teaching is that scoffers will come. The teaching is that scoffers will come. The teaching is that they will scoff. I love that. You do get that in the translation here. Scoffers, scoffers scoffing will come is pretty much the Greek. He really wants you to know there's going to be a lot of scoffing. There's going to be a lot of people looking at you. Probably it happens to you today. They might ask you outright, or they might just look at you in that funny kind of sideways way of, do you really believe that Jesus is actually coming back? And all that stuff about coming on the clouds with fire, all that stuff about destruction of the earth, do you you really believe that? In our day, the argument's even a bit stronger. It's like, it has been 2,000 years, you know, and he's not come back yet. Are you sure? Are you sure? They tell us often, don't they, that it's time to give up believing That old myth. But but Peter's response is is read read the text of the prophets. Remember the teaching of your church leaders, in our case, the material that we have in the New Testament. The fact that Jesus is taking a long time to come is not a sign that he's not going to come. It's a sign of the kindness of God that he waits. That he waits. And Peter says in verse 8: Do not forget. Do not forget about the Lord's kindness. Do not forget why it's happening slowly. Now, that word for do not forget means don't allow it to escape your notice. Don't overlook this fact. Peter is basically saying, people, you know this already. This is not new information. Just the point is don't forget it. Don't overlook it. Don't let it escape your notice. Or even, like the scoffers do, don't deliberately forget. We have this reference in verse 5 to the scoffers deliberately forgetting. Now, actually, the word that's translated deliberately, forget, is exactly the same word as is translated do not forget um, in relation to the believers. The translators have introduced that word deliberately to allow for the fact that sometimes there is a forgetting that can be deliberate. There can be a habit of overlooking truth that eventually becomes a deliberate blindness to it. And therein lies the issue for us as believers. If we choose to close our eyes repeatedly to the truth, there is a danger that we become deliberate in our forgetting of it. And that is what has happened to the scoffers. These scoffers probably would have been Jews. They had in their own scriptures the story of Noah and how the world was flooded, how life was almost completely destroyed. And yet they refused to believe. In many ways, they deliberately forgot that God might well judge again. Probably because they were so sure that their interpretation of the world was right that they couldn't allow for the possibility of considering any other option. And Peter's actually quite clear in verse 16. You'll see that that kind of failing to notice, that kind of choosing not to see, means a distorting of the truth that eventually leads to destruction of those who distort that truth. So Peter's whole point is don't be so committed to the world's way of viewing things that you miss the truth that is provided in the teaching of the prophets and of the church for us in the teaching of Scripture. Don't be so taken by the way that the world thinks about reality that you choose deliberately to forget the truth that is contained in Scripture. Instead, he says, set your mind backwards on the truth that you have known. Do not forget it. Deliberately instead, set your mind on that truth. Like a bank teller, handle some more of the true currency so that when you meet the fake stuff, you just know intuitively and straight away that this is false teaching. Be reminded, recall, he says. Set your mind backwards, but then also set your mind forwards. In verses 11 to 12, he tells us to look forward to this judgment day, to look forward to this day of God and to speed its coming by our godly living. Set your mind forwards, Peter says, because that day, though it is terrible, though it is awesome, though it is great, though the world will be destroyed by fire, yet, listen to what he says. Verse 13, in keeping with his promise, We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is going to be a reality where God is worshipped, where love reigns, where peace reigns, where joy reigns. That is the future hope for the church of God. And so he says... Set your mind forward on that reality. Don't let that just be pie in the sky for you. Don't let that just be of the kind of consistency of a fairy tale. Let that be real for you because it is your future hope. It is the reality into which you will one day walk. And he tells us in verse 14 that that setting of our minds forwards towards the coming hope of life with God produces blameless living now. How we set our minds, friends, must overflow in the fruit of a lifestyle that's pleasing to him. And so really what he's saying to his readers, to his listeners, is set your mind backwards to the truth that you've been taught and set your mind forwards towards your future hope. And then let the pure mindset that results from that That pure mindset that shines when it is lifted up to the light of the Son of God, let that then produce the kind of behavior and fruit that is pleasing to the Lord. So, really simple application for us, actually. Peter calls us to set our minds backwards, that's a choice. That doesn't happen by accident. You don't get a mindset framed by the scriptures unless you choose to immerse yourself in the scriptures. He says, set your mind backwards, but he also says, set your mind forwards. And again, that doesn't happen by accident. Those people that you know who can wax lyrical about the coming hope of heaven, that didn't just happen by accident. That's because they spent time imagining it, dwelling on it, resting in the scripture passages about it. Those people who are shaped by a hope of heaven are shaped by the hope of heaven because they dwell in their hearts in the reality that that is going to come. So the application on one level is simple, but it's also hard. This is about where we dwell. This is about where we dwell because that is what changes our mindset and that then (laughs) is what changes our behavior. Set your minds backwards, Peter says, into the truth that scripture gives you so that you know the truth, so that you recognize false teaching without even having to think about it and set your mind forwards onto the hope of heaven because that is where you're directed. So simply set your mind backwards on the scripture. Do you know what? There is no way around it. I know it's hard. It's hard in my life, too. We've just got to get into the Bible. There's lots of ways to do it, it will be opposed. Inevitably, there are enemy forces that do not wish you to read the Bible, so it will be opposed. Do it anyway. Do it as your act of of subversive spiritual warfare against those powers. Get in the scriptures anyway, because they are the word of God. You might do that by reading the text. You might not be a massive reader, so you might want to download an audio copy of the Bible. You might be someone who needs to discuss something you read with others. Well, get in a small group. There's loads of small groups in this church. We meet midweek and we talk about the text. Or you might wish to download some kind of app that will help you to engage a little bit more by reading some devotional notes on the text. You might also, for a season, prefer to think about what does the Bible say about a certain topic, in which case there are hundreds of Christian books, thousands of Christian books you can buy on this subject that will take you through the Scripture as a whole to perceive what the Scripture says about a certain topic. Really, it doesn't matter how you do it. It doesn't matter how I do it. We've just got to do it. And actually, um, someone can stand at the front here and come up with a million ideas. But the truth is, when I'm sitting there, I'm like, the truth is, you can give me all the ideas in the world, but I've still got to actually do the thing. Set your mind backwards in the truth of Scripture. Maybe learn a psalm even, then you can pray it back to God every day. Somehow, get it inside your heart so that when people speak to you, It's the reality of the scriptural worldview that comes out. Set your mind backwards, but also set your mind forwards. Think every day about the coming hope. Think about the promise that Jesus is returning. It doesn't matter how long it takes. He is returning, and he will gather you up with him. He comes, yes, to judge, but for believers, he comes also to bring reward. So let's fill our minds and hearts with truth about the new heavens and the new earth. That's sometimes easier said than done. But there's a number of resources over the years that I've come across that have been hugely helpful. And I'm going to read just a little portion of a couple of books and also a little portion of scripture. These are texts that have helped me to begin to imagine what the new heavens and the new earth might be like. And so I offer them to you as a way of stirring imagination. As I say, two of the texts are not scripture. They're not inspired. They are someone's best guess imagination of what might be. So we don't take them as scripture, but let them stir you up as to the possibilities of what might be because those who've written are writing in conversation with scripture. The first author is Johnny Erickson Tarder. She's a quadriplegic um, who has had no movement for many years. I think she was 17 probably when she dived into a swimming pool and uh, became very badly injured. And her book is called, well, she has hundreds of books, but this particular book is called Heaven, What Will It Be Like? And she says this. My assurance of heaven is so alive that I've been making dates with friends to do all sorts of fun things once we get our new bodies. Like the following conversation with a girl in a wheelchair I met at a conference. Since we've been sitting here talking about heaven, I said, would you like to make a date to get together up there? The girl sitting twisted and humped over, gave me a funny look and asked, and do what? What would you like to do? "Uh, I'd like to be able to knit, she said hesitantly. Then let's make a date to meet in a cabin, pull up a couple of rocking chairs by the fire and reach for our knitting needles, okay? My friend in the wheelchair scoffed. You're just saying that. Heaven's not going to have cabins and rocking chairs. That stuff's only on earth. I looked at her in all seriousness and said, I believe heaven will. Heaven is by no means ambiguous. Isaiah 65, 17 says that God is planning a new heavens and a new earth. Did you get that? Heaven has our planet in it. A new earth with earthy things in it. Nothing clunky, no gawky images. Just warm and wonderful things that make earth, earth. How can you be so sure of what the new earth will be like? Because I don't think God is going to switch dictionaries on us and suddenly redefine what earth is. If there are streets, rivers, trees and mountains in the new earth, like the Bible says there will be, then why not all the other good things? Why not rocking chairs? She sat looking at me with a wry smile and then her scepticism vanished. The second excerpt is from a book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's writing, this is another slightly mythic story where, um, in this case, a whole bunch of passengers are on a bus traveling from hell to heaven in order to visit it. And where they get to in heaven is just the outer reaches of heaven. But this passage in particular, I find hugely powerful. All down one long aisle of the forest, the undersides of the leafy branches had begun to tremble with dancing light, and on earth I knew nothing so likely to produce this appearance as the reflected lights cast upward by moving water. A few moments later, I realised my mistake. Some kind of procession was approaching us, and the light came from the persons who composed it. First came bright spirits, not the spirits of men, who danced and scattered flowers, soundlessly falling, lightly drifting flowers, though by the standards of the ghost world, each petal would have weighed a hundredweight, and their fall would have been like the crashing of boulders. Then on the left and right, at each side of the forest avenue, came youthful shapes, boys upon one hand and girls upon the other. If I could remember their singing and write down the notes, no man who read that score would ever grow sick or old. Between them went musicians, and after these a lady in whose honour all this was being done. I cannot now remember whether she was naked or clothed. If she were naked, then it must have been the almost visible penumbra of her courtesy and joy, which produces in my memory the illusion of a great and shining train that followed her across the happy grass. If she were clothed, Then the illusion of nakedness is doubtless due to the clarity with which her inmost spirit shone through the clothes. For clothes in that country are not a disguise. The spiritual body lives along each thread and turns them into living organs. A robe or a crown is there as much as one of the wearer's features as a lip or an eye. But I have forgotten. And only partly do I remember the unbearable beauty of her face. Is it? Is it? I whispered to my guide. Not at all, said he. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Aye, she's one of the great ones. You've heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. Who are these gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. Haven't you read your Milton? A thousand livened angels lackey her. And who are all these young men and women by her side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on their parents? No, there are those that steal other people's children, but her mother co- motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell, went back to na- their natural parents loving them more. Few men looked on her without becoming in a certain fashion, her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true but truer to their own wives. And how, but hello, uh, what are all these animals? A cat, two cats, dozens of cats, and all those dogs. Why, I can't count them. And the birds, uh, and the horses. They are her beasts. Or did she keep a sort of zoo? I mean, this is a bit too much. Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her, they became themselves and now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said, it is like when you throw a stone into a pool and the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come to its full strength. But already there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint such as yonder lady to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. And now the text of John's revelation. Then I saw a new heaven. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light Why don't we turn to prayer for a moment? Father God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you have given us the truth in Jesus Christ and in the written testimony that Scripture is regarding him. We thank you that by it, as we set our minds backwards, we can know truth. And by immersing ourselves in that truth, we can recognise false teaching immediately and intuitively. Help us, we pray, Lord, to immerse ourselves more and more into scripture. Help our lives to become scripture-soaked and our mindsets to become scripture-framed. And then, Lord, also, would you set our minds forward? Would you set our minds forward on the coming hope in Jesus? That one day... There will be no more curse, that one day we will experience you with us in a way that right now we can only imagine, that the fullness of creation's days will come to its high point and that you will be all in all. So Lord, set our minds forward on that reality, let its truth trickle into us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.